gonna get back into our series on Daniel. Daniel chapter three, probably the most famous passage in the entire book. Daniel chapter three is part four of our series. And we're looking at a story that we hear in uh, Sunday school or churches all over America, all over the world. This is a story that has inspired millions, if not billions, of people in faith. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Um, today's title is Faith Isn't Iffy. Faith Isn't Iffy. Say that with me. Faith Isn't Iffy. And we're going to talk about what it means to have faith. Now, faith is a general subject. It is a broad subject, but we're going to try and narrow it down and, and kind of look at how these three men exemplify true biblical faith. What is faith? We throw that around a lot, that term. Have a little faith. I'm so thankful for my faith. If it wasn't for my faith, I need to have more faith. What does it mean to have faith? What is faith? What is true biblical faith? I want to run down some things that are not faith. For one, faith is not a force. A lot of people treat faith like a force. A motivational phrase, a you can do it kind of message. Believe for the best and all will be well. Or to have some kind of uh, psychosis power as in uh, Star Wars, so on and so forth. To have that faith to tell somebody, these are not the droids you are looking for. <laughs> as if faith is some kind of force. Uh, for some, faith is a feeling and a, and, a, and a mystical experience to have that old memory conjured up because of the right song, the right moment, the right atmosphere, the right smell, whatever, something that makes you feel like God is there. And I'm not saying that we should never feel God. We should. There is a time and there are moments when you will feel the presence of God in your life in a real and living way. But sometimes you're not going to feel a thing and you're still going to have to obey God. Sometimes the feelings will not be there and you're still going to have to suck it up and serve. That's, that's what we're talking about when it comes to faith. Faith is not a feeling. Feelings are the worst indicators of what you should do sometimes. And so faith is not a feeling. And then uh, some people, they treat faith like a format. Notice the theme now, all F words. Good F words. Um, faith is a format for some people. My creed, my tenets, my doctrine, my denomination. People will say, well, my Christian faith or my Jewish faith or my Catholic faith uh, will not allow me or will allow me, whatever. Faith has a format for what you believe. And then for some, faith is a reason or faith is an excuse to be fruity. Fruity Christians. And I've been in the church, I've, I've been raised in the church, and I've been in the church a long time. I'm, a, I'm telling you, I have met some fruity Christians. Has anybody here met a few fruity Christians? Come on, if you've, put, if you've ever met a fruity Christian, put your hand up, nice and proud. I know there are some of you, you bet. If your hand's not up. <laughs> you 
your friend wanted me to tell you. <laughs> and then this is the main idea, though. For many people, too many people, faith is a formula. God, I will do A, B, and C, so now you should be doing D, E, and F. We're following the five steps of principles to get to that place that you expect God to bring you because you did your part. Now God is somehow obligated to this deal you never had to do his part. And that is where many people find themselves in church. Well, I'm doing all the right things. I'm doing the church thing. I'm doing the Bible reading thing. I'm doing the prayer thing. Uh, I'm doing all these good things that I'm supposed to do. Aren't I supposed to expect in return some compensation for my troubles? Now, faith is some kind of a magic formula. You put the things down in, in, in place in your life, and then God is somehow obligated to do according to your whims and to your purposes. And, and this is not, let me be clear, this is not true biblical faith. Faith is not a formula because what happens when we have that formula that God is obligated? Most times we don't have our faith in God anymore. We have our faith in the formula. And when the formula lets us down, we somehow blame God or we think God hasn't been true or maybe even God isn't real. And that's not the case. The case is that we've got a false idea of faith. So what is true biblical faith? Well, let me tell you something. In chapter 3 of Dave, Daniel, there is no clearer example of true biblical faith than in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this marvelous chapter. So let's look at it. Chapter 3 of Daniel, true biblical faith, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So come, this is a dedication ceremony. I built a nice image. It's all of gold. Here we go. Then at verse three, it says the satraps, prefects, governors, counselors, treasurers, justices, magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 4. Then the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the bagpipe, I guess there was a few Irish people there, and every kind of music, you were to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 6, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into the burning, fiery furnace. The last time that we saw King Nebuchadnezzar was in Daniel chapter 2. If you are here two weeks ago, we talked about this. The last time we saw Nebuchadnezzar, he was having bad dreams, couldn't sleep, and wanted to kill everybody. And he summoned for the magicians to come and tell him his dream. And only one man stood up and told him his dream and the interpretation. That man was Daniel. And Daniel gave his dream back to Nebuchadnezzar. He said, you dreamt of an image. And the image head was made of gold. Its chest was silver. Its torso was bronze. Its legs were iron. And its feet were partly of iron and partly of clay. It was a statue of diminishing materials. And Daniel says, now here's the interpretation. God has given to you, Nebuchadnezzar. 
And he said, you are the image of gold. You are the head of gold. You are the head of gold. And God has given you this kingdom. This is not your own doing. This is the doing of the almighty God who rules and reigns over all nations on all peoples. And now after your kingdom shall come an inferior kingdom. And after that kingdom, another kingdom. And after that kingdom, another kingdom. And after that kingdom, God will set up his own kingdom. That kingdom will destroy all the other kingdoms of the world and will infiltrate the entire world. And that kingdom will never end. That's the interpretation and the word that Daniel gave to Nebuchadnezzar. Now in chapter three, uh, by the way, at the end of chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar falls on his face, pays homage to Daniel, gives him all kinds of gifts, and promotes him. Was that a confession of faith? No, because here we are in chapter three, and what has Nebuchadnezzar done? He's decided to make his own image probably based on the dream and the interpretation. And instead of having diminishing materials, he has decided to make the entire image of gold as if to try and counteract the dream that God had given him. It's an amazing thing that Nebuchadnezzar does here. Here's what he does. He hears God's word, and then he goes and does his own thing. He hears what God is going to do, and so he thinks, I'm going to make that stop. I don't like that interpretation. I'm going to make the whole image of gold, and then I'm going to force all the other kingdoms of the world to come and worship the image to make sure that my kingdom lasts forever. He's the classic guy who has reached the pinnacle of his profession, and now he's scared of losing it all, so he becomes real hard-nosed and angry at everybody and forceful and has tried to gather all the people of the world to come and be worshipers of his kingdom. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing phenomenon that happens in the Christian church. How many people will hear the pastor preach something and then go out of the building having heard it preached and do the exact opposite? And I've been preaching for 15 years and I've seen it a thousand times. And I've had conversations with people and, and they, sometimes I will have conversations with some of you. God bless your hearts. And you will tell me what you heard me say and I will be like, I didn't say that. I don't know where you got that, but that didn't come out of my mouth because what you just said back to me is actually non-Christian. And I'm like, what did you hear? And sometimes people don't hear. This is why Jesus says, be careful how you hear in one of the passages of the Gospels. And he heard, but he didn't do. He heard, and he decides to do his own thing. Like like I heard recently, and it came third party, so I'm not going to really put a lot of weight into it, but I heard from somebody that there was someone in the church who, because they heard me preach about how Jesus paid it all and took care of all your sin, that now you can go and do all your sin again. And I don't know who you are, but that's wrong. Yeah, we love that song, Jesus paid it all, but do we like the next verse? All to him I owe, hello, amen. Yeah, he paid it all. Now he owns you. He is your Lord. He is your Savior, and and I don't know who you are. I don't know if I'm even talking to you, but if you're in the audience today, I didn't say that. Amen. Verse 7, therefore, as soon as the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations, languages fell down and worshipped 
the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Did you see how everybody just kind of acquiesces? Everybody moves together in idolatry. Isn't that incredible? And you see this over and over and over again in almost every generation that there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of man and there's the kingdom of God. And it's amazing how similar the people in the kingdom of man are. This ancient religion of man worship from the Tower of Babel, even further back. The founder of the Tower of Babel was a man named Nimrod. His ancestor was a man named Cain. Do you know what Cain does immediately after he kills his brother? Do you know what happens? God comes and curses Cain, and Cain goes to another country, and he builds a city. And all down through the generations of human history, there has been the city of man and the city of God. The city of man is to worship and, and serve man's ideas, man's concepts, man's way of doing life and relationships and all these other things, and then there is God's way. And here's the story of the Bible. There's a city of man. There's a city of God. And as man's city continues to increase, in the midst of that city, God is raising up people one soul at a time to be part of his heavenly city that shall endure for all eternity. And so here we are again, city of man, city of God. Everybody's worshiping. And here's what happens in verse 8. Therefore, at that, certain, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews, and they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, and the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. Let me just stop, stop right there for a second. Did anybody see the height of the image? 60 cubits. The breadth of the, of the image? Six cubits. And the number of instruments played? Six. Six, six, six. In Revelation chapter 13, at the end of days, the Bible prophetically tells us that there's going to be another man who will rise up from the earth and he will build an image and everybody is forced to worship the image. To get an image uh, stamped on their left hand or on their forehead and whoever doesn't worship the image will die. And you can't buy and sell without the mark. And at the end of Revelation chapter 13 it says that the man's name is a number and the number is 666. Six, six. Interesting how history repeats itself. Remember this, that Daniel is not only a historical book, it's also a prophetic book, and it's telling us what's going to happen. How are you going to stand as the world? Do you also realize that the world is coming together as never before? Just like Nebuchadnezzar brought all the nations together, so too the kingdom of this world, all coming together through the internet and through um, these devices and through uh, our technology, we are more connected as one world as never before. What's going to happen in the future is what happened in the past. What will you do? And so verse 11, and whoever does not fall down and worship will be cast into a burning fiery furnace. Verse 12, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed. Over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true? 
O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image that I have set up. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, and the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will save you out of my hands? Now for the greatest statement of faith in the entire Old Testament. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O king Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us out of your hand uh, from the burning furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Ladies and gentlemen, that is true faith. That is real faith. That is biblical faith. We don't need to defend ourselves. We don't need to explain ourselves to you. We want you to know that our God whom we serve is able. And if, this is the first if they tell him, tell him, if we need to go into that fiery furnace. God can deliver us from the fiery furnace. And he will deliver us. That's faith. He will deliver us from the fiery furnace. But verse 18 is the second if. It's a better if. But if not, if God doesn't deliver us, and if we die in the flames, we want you to know we're still not worshiping your image, and we're still not serving your gods. That is faith. That is true faith. That is faith that is not iffy. True faith isn't iffy. Here's what it means to have true faith. It's not in your notes. You're going to have to write it down. True faith is turning your what-ifs into even-ifs. That many people live with what-ifs. What, what if, what if I give my life to Jesus and things don't go well? What if I start obeying God with my finances and then I don't have as much? What if I wait for somebody who is a Christian and marry them as opposed to all these other options? What if, what if it never happens and many Christians live with what ifs and many marriages never get better because of the what ifs? Well, what if I love her and, and she doesn't respect me? Or, or what if I respect him and he doesn't love me? And all the what ifs, and we kind of hedge our bets based on our what ifs. It's amazing the number of Christians that are stopping themselves from moving forward in faith because of your what ifs. And true faith is taking your what ifs and turning them into even ifs. Even if it doesn't work out like I planned. Even if I end up losing in this deal, even if I get harassed and people hate me and people don't like me and the Nebuchadnezzars throw me into the fiery furnace of their disapproval and their hatred of me, even if it doesn't go as well for me as it could have because of my faith in Christ, I'm still holding on to Jesus because I know my God will deliver me. That's true faith. True faith is turning your what-ifs into even-ifs. So point number one, if you're taking notes, true faith isn't trying Jesus out. 
And they say, well, let's just see how this goes with this whole fiery furnace deal. And if we get close and we start to feel the heat, um, we'll bow. <laughs> There's a lot of people who think they're trying Jesus out. You can't try Jesus out. You understand this? <laughs> Jesus is not a car that you take for a test drive. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Jesus is the one who ransoms us and purchases us with his blood. And, and once we have been purchased, there, there's no going back. And, and you've got to understand something that true faith, true faith is regeneration, born again from the inside out. The world is dead to you. And you have your struggles, you'll still struggle with some sins, but, but there's no going back to where you came from. You didn't try Jesus out, friend. You're either thinking you're saved or you are saved. And these men throw, throw their lot in with God completely and totally. I, there's a bumper sticker that really bugs me, a Christian bumper sticker. As most Christian paraphernalia does, it bugs me. And it says this, try Jesus. If he doesn't work, the devil will always take you back. <laughs> like, and we wonder why people don't like Christians. Because we put that on our cars. And we need to stop. Because you don't try Jesus out. You don't. You're either born again or you're not born again. You're either sold out or you're not sold out. And there's a lot of people who come to church. Listen, they come to church and they leave. And they say, well, that didn't really work out. I gave that Christianity thing a try. Didn't really work out. No, you weren't converted. You, you liked what you saw. You maybe were entertained for a moment. You, it got you through some tough times. But listen, true biblical faith is not based on the experience of your life as you expect it to be. And there are people who come to church for a little while and then they leave and they say things like this. I was trying to do that Christian thing, but somebody said something to me and it bugged me and it offended me and so I left. Seriously? Somebody said something to you and you left? <laughs> that's not conversion, friend. I don't know what that is, but that's not conversion. I'm amazed at how many Christians get offended at the least little thing and then, and then walk away from the church. It's like, man, man up. Seriously. Jesus went to the cross for you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went to the fiery furnace, and you're going to sit there and say, I was offended by what somebody said to me. <laughs> if you make it to heaven, let me just say something. I pray that you don't run into Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when you get there. Because I don't know what you're going to say. They're going to say, hey, hey, let's talk about what we did on earth. How did it go for you? We were cast into a burning fiery furnace. The temperature was 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit. And you're going to say, well, somebody said something. <laughs> Come on, that's not biblical, true faith. It's not trying Jesus out, friend. 
When Jesus gets your life, he doesn't let go. And you know that you're sold out for his purposes and his plans. I got to take a drink of water. In Matthew 13, Jesus talks about four soils. And he, he says that those four soils represent four different responses to this movement. Four different responses to him. One of those responses is called the rocky soil. He says it like this in verse 20. Some seed was sown on the rocky ground. And he says, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. In other words, they're happy to be in church. They're happy to be here. They love what they see and experience. Yet he has no root in himself. It's all surface. And he endures for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. In other words, they came to try Jesus out. Is this going to improve my life? And when it doesn't improve their life as they expect it to improve their life, they walk away. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a but if not cause in your faith? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, God can save us from this fiery furnace, but if not, do you have a clause in your faith that says, but if not? True faith is not getting what you want from God. True faith is accepting what he chooses to give you. That's what true biblical faith looks like. Let's look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression on his face changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these three men bound in their cloaks, tunics, hats, and other garments were thrown in the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was so urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Number two, if you're taking notes, true faith accepts God's assignment. It says, God, I don't like this, but you have a plan, and you have a purpose, and this is what you want from me. It might sound strange to hear this, but the fiery furnace was actually assigned by God to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, it wasn't his ideal will, but it was his permissive will to let them go into that furnace. Everybody here, listen to me. You have an assignment from God. And your assignment is different than everybody else's. And I don't have your assignment, and you don't have my assignment, but we have an assignment that God saw fit for our lives. And most of our troubles and most of our prayers, many times, are praying for a new assignment. We're a new place. And God is like, I have given this to you. Let me just run down some biblical assignments from the scriptures. Number one, when and where you were born is an assignment from God. When and where you were born is an assignment from God. Acts 17 verse 26 says that from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined 
the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. I was born to Christian parents. I was, and, and many of you, that's your story. You were born to Christian parents who were together and still are together. Can I ask all of you who are in that situation like me, can I ask you to do something? Can I ask you to get over yourself, spiritually speaking? Because you didn't have as much to do with how you got to where you are as you think you did. And some of you need to stop looking down your nose at people who can't, quote, get their act together because they didn't come from the spiritual heritage that you were lucky and fortunate enough to have handed to you by the divine will of God. And we need to have patience with people because not everybody was handed what I was handed. And I, I can't stand up here and say, look at me, I arrived. No, I didn't. I was graced by God, and, and there, but by, by the grace of God, go I. Your assignment is from God, where you live and when you live. Number two, your place in the body of Christ is an assignment from God. This is what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12. The human body has many parts but many parts make up one body. So it is in the body of Christ. And verse 18, God has put each part just where he wants it. You are right where you are by divine appointment of God. Number three, your spiritual gifts are God's assignment. That's, uh, you, you are gifted by the Holy Spirit. And in the same chapter of 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, it says, it is the one and only Spirit who distributes these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. You might not have the gifts that you want, but you got the gifts that God gave you. And many of us are living with gift envy. I wish I could be like that person. I wish I could do that. I wish I could. Man, stop wishing for other people's gifts and start asking the Holy Spirit to show you your gifts. And because I believe he's given them to you, but you need to ask him to show them to you and then flow in your gifts. But number four, and this is the hardest one to hear, but what you suffer is assigned by God. The stress in that relationship because of Jesus is assigned by God. That difficulty with your father now because of Jesus, that tension at work, that problem that you have with, with people not realizing what has happened to you and that frustration that comes because you can't understand why. Why are they so hard on you? And if it's because of Christ, it's an assignment did you, have, you, have you noticed, have you watched, are you seeing it happen now in America that it's like the furnace has been lit and the temperature is being turned up on Christians, true Christians who will hold to the word of God. And as the temperature rises, and it's rising slowly in this country, but it is rising, it's our assignment. First Peter chapter 4, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is normative. To experience hostility in the name of Christ, to experience hatred in the name of Christ, to experience persecution in the name of Christ, it is normative. And verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share in the sufferings of Christ that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. But then Peter 
qualified suffering. And I think I need to just go a little bit further in that text to show you what he says. Verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. What's Peter saying? He's saying there is suffering for Jesus and then there is suffering for stupid. You're not suffering when you experience the consequences of sin. That's not suffering for Jesus. That's suffering for refusing to follow Jesus. And sin has a cost, and sin bears a penalty, and you're going to experience that. That is not what we're talking about. We're talking about standing in faith and still suffering in the midst of it. Hebrews chapter 11 is the great chapter on faith in the New Testament. The great chapter on faith, even if you have a cursory knowledge of the Bible, you know Hebrews 11 as the hall of fame for heroes in the faith. And it starts by opening up by saying um, that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And then it talks about the faith of mighty men of God, like Abel and Noah and Moses and Abraham and all these mighty, powerful men and women of faith. How they did these amazing things in faith. And then he gets to the point where he has to start summarizing because there's so many stories to tell. And he gets to verse 32, and I want to read it for you. And he says, time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Those are some powerful, awesome assignments. Who wouldn't like some of those? But then he turns the tables. In verse 35, the second half, he says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains, imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and caves and dens of the earth. Some conquered kingdoms and some suffered injustices in faith. And for some of you, you're going to be in that first category, and some of you are going to be in that second category. And it's all the story of our faith. Because true faith isn't getting from God what we want. True faith is accepting from God what he chooses to give. Accepting your assignment. And so the story goes on, then can... Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in verse 24. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men into the fire? They said, yes. He said, I see four, <laughs> unbound and walking around in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. And then verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, and the prefects, and the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw, all these nations saw, that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. Their hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire was upon them. They didn't even smell like smoke. 
Isn't that cool? And Nebuchadnezzar sees somebody walking around with these three men in the fire. Who is that man? It's Jesus Christ. Theologians call this a theophany. A theophany was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it happened a few times in the Old Testament. It happened at the burning bush with Moses. It happened in Joshua 5, right before Jericho. It happened in Judges chapter 6 with a man named Gideon. And, and now in Daniel chapter 3, it's happening again, and Jesus is showing up in the midst of the fire, and he's walking through the fire with these men. And here's the last point. The true faith accepts God's assignment. True faith isn't trying Jesus out, but number three, true faith is a personal relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's true faith. Not this, not this enigmatic idea, not this, not this concept of believing certain doctrines. It's a personal relationship with Jesus. Not going to church, not being raised a Christian, personally knowing him and being known by him. That David, the psalmist, writes in Psalm 23 that the Lord is my shepherd, it's personal. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. What? For his name's sake. It's, it's not what I want. It's, it's for his name's sake. And then what does he say? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. It's personal. It's, it's knowing God as Savior and as Lord. And I, I had a man come to me at the end of the second, first service today, and he said, I just had to finally give up. And today's the day I did it. Stop trying to wrangle out of God's hand what you think you should have out of life and start accepting what he chooses to give you, knowing that in the fire he is with you. Somebody might have sent you in there, but God's gonna be there when you get there. And at the end of your days, and the end of your life, you will see his face, and he will see, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of heaven. That's real biblical faith. And so Nebuchadnezzar, verse 28, answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here he goes again, worshiping the God of Israel again. He has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Here he goes again with his rules and regulations. Any people, nation, or language that speaks against anything, anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. This guy goes from one extreme to the next. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Do you know what the qualitative difference 
of our faith is, is that in our faith, we have the presence of God with us when life hands us what we don't want. There's no other faith that's like this, and there's no other God that saves like that. There's no other, listen, there's no other relationship that can give this to you. There's no other success or status that can give this to you. There's no other person that can give it to you. Only Jesus, Lord and Savior, in my heart. Would you stand with me?